Hi, this is David Thornburg, President and CEO of the Committee of 70. Welcome to Studio C70, our podcast and webcast platform that celebrates ideas and practices that can strengthen our local democracy. Many of you know that last fall, Pennsylvania created a new option for voters to vote at home by mail ballot. In the midst of our current public health crisis, voting at home makes perfect sense for you and for us. So today, we're thrilled to be joined by Amber McReynolds, the CEO of the National Vote at Home Institute and the nation's leading advocate for this old but new way of voting. Let's join the conversation with Amber from her home in Denver, Colorado, with apologies for the audio quality. Chalk it up to quarantine, I guess. Amber, let's let's start out with a little bit of your backstory, in particular, uh, your uh, tenure as director of elections in Denver. Is this a job that you always wanted to have? And and what did you learn from that experience that's helpful to you uh, in this role now? Sure. Well, I um, uh, was it a job I always wanted to have? I, I don't think I knew the job existed when <laughs> I was when I was when I was young. Um, but I did I did study political science and speech communications and and was very involved in government and politics and the and the study, if you will, of that in college. Um, and then when I got out of college, I went and did my master's at, in London. I actually remember going and, and observing the um, the London uh, elections office, counting ballots during one of the elections that I was there. Um, but also while I was there, I was an overseas voter um, and missed an election because my ballot didn't arrive soon enough to me. And it was before UACAVA, before UMUBA, before some of the provisions that were put in place for voters. So I actually experienced what it meant to not be able to vote because of, of my logistical <laughs> considerations. Um, and when I came back to the United States, I actually worked uh, for a, a group called New Voters Project during the 2004 presidential election. And I was um, assigned in Iowa to be one of the uh, coordinators, one of the regional coordinators. And our, we were a nonpartisan nonprofit, and we were simply focused on helping um, students on college campuses across Iowa engage with the civics process, making sure they were educated, getting them help with registration and voter registration. And that, that job really showed me, number one, how difficult and how many obstacles there are for everyday voters um, to engage with the process. And then it also um, uh, demonstrated how how much work we really had in front of us to streamline some of these processes to make it easier for voters. Uh, so in that work, I traveled to Denver quite a bit and uh, was doing trainings there. And I loved the city and decided to try to search for jobs in the elections world um, since I had gotten so, I, I just developed a love for it and came across a job at the Denver elections office. Um, and it was an operational coordinator job. I applied for it and started working there and they gave me the responsibility of managing the vote by mail processes, including the overseas voting processes that I had once experienced in a, in a different way. Yeah. Um, and I managed that entire thing. And then over time, I kept suggesting new ideas and trying to suggest ways to improve things. Um, and then I became deputy director and then director of elections uh, in 2011 and served in that role for a little over seven years. And in that time, uh, we were able to transform the, the voting model in Colorado to include 
automatic ballot delivery, same day registration, vote centers, automatic registration, and also risk limiting audits. And I was able to lead not only on the policy side and, and helping voters or, or helping the legislative body uh, draft the provisions that would become part of that law, but then also implement it as an elections director and help and, and aid my colleagues across the state also implement those laws. And um, we did it very quickly because the law passed in May of 2013 and we had a statewide election in November of 2013 uh, that we had to prepare for. So uh, in addition that to, you know, sort of running the process, I also transitioned various models and systems. So I know what it takes to do it quickly. I know what it takes to do it in a, in a stressful environment. Um, and uh, was served in that role in Denver until uh, the fall of 2018, and then joined the National Vote at Home Institute as CEO. Um, and part of the reason, first, it was a very hard decision for me to leave the Denver Elections Office. Um, and I love the team I built there, and they're still, I think, one of the most incredible teams in the country. Um, but part of my uh, sort of thinking and leaving is that I could help others think about how to improve these processes and help other states and help other local election officials. And so for me, I, I've always wanted to continue to have an impact and help voters vote. And this was a great way for me to, to do that. Yeah. Well, as I said at the outset, I've been impressed by both your, your sort of operational and systems thinking and, and also your, uh, your sort of ingrained impatience to figure out ways to do things better. So that's yeah. a rare, that's a rare combination. Most people yes. who understand the systems uh, maybe uh, become a little defensive about the systems and sort of mm. don't want to change. So yeah, kudos, kudos to you for, uh, for working on both fronts. Yeah, I think, I think continuous improvement is key for, yeah. um, for us to continue to, make voting more accessible and more secure and more transparent for everybody. Yeah. So before we get into what we're really here to talk about, which is, is voting at home and the opportunity and the challenge that we're presented with, just a little sidebar. I'm cur I, I've been curious since I started doing this work about five years ago that um, election administration just doesn't get much respect. Um, it feels like it's a two twice. People see it as a twice a year pop up enterprise. Um, when it comes to allocating resources or making budget decisions, they're hard fought dollars. Uh, it doesn't always attract the best and the brightest in government. Um, the technology community is kind of treats it like an also ran. So maybe the hopeful spin is: uh, do do you think? There's some opportunity now that we'll start to look at that business differently. I, d I do. Um, I think that there are incredible people that work in this process across the country and they, they do the best they can with yeah. the frankly bad policies that are in place in most States. Uh, I always kind of say that there's a lot of great election officials doing many great things with one hand tied behind their back because they don't have good policies to deal with. And we're seeing that right now as more and more people are requesting vote by mail ballots. We're seeing the burden that falls on the local election off officials and they're often underfunded. As you mentioned, um, they, it's an environment that is a little bit resistance to, to change 
right? Not because election officials don't want to change, but actually because policymakers don't want to change. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason for that is they get elected in a current in, in a certain environment, and they're and they're less apt to want to change that given that they won. And so, great point. Great I point. you know I really think that we have to in amongst all of this crisis, we also need to be talking about how we can, um, in essence, pull elections out of that partisan environment that frankly has hurt it for too long and has hurt it for decades because that's really the only way we can we can get folks operating at a, at a better level and a higher level in terms of continuous improvement and things like that and pulling the partisanship out because it has to be about who votes not who wins. Exactly. And the, the primary problem with all of this is that, you know, election officials want to do good things, but they are, frankly, their hands are tied behind their backs half the time because of bad policies. Yeah. Well, and without getting, dipping our toes too far into the partisan waters, I, I, I suspect you agree that that uh, partisanship and the overlay of, you know, uh, suspicion that permeates this process seems like it's getting worse rather than better. But, you know, we'll, we'll look forward and, and look hopeful. Let's, yeah. let's talk about voting by mail. You know, um, you know something about Pennsylvania. I would call Pennsylvania kind of a traditional voting state. You know, our election code was written in 1937 uh, at a time when I remind people that, um, you know, uh, communities were more dense uh, everything sort of operated at the neighborhood scale. Uh, voting was kind of a community endeavor when you all showed up and there's good old Mrs. White at the polls working behind the desk. And uh, you can almost see everything in black and white. Right. And, and things are changed. And now obviously we're in this, this public health crisis. So with that as a, and you know, we're not alone in that. This probably describes a lot of how the various states and, and counties and localities have the culture of voting over the years. So when you um, size up that situation and uh, how, how does voting at home, which I think you rightly characterize as voting at home and not voting by mail, it's voting mm -hmm. at home. How does that improve people's lives? What difference does it make? How could this create a, a, a better uh, culture of, of local democracy than the one that maybe we're used to? Yeah, well, a few things on that. I mean, you know, the, the whole goal that we've had with voting at home and, and the changes and just how we've tried to improve that process is um, uh, not to take community away, but to think about community in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and so what vote by mail, you know, as we vote by mail, meaning mailing a ballot out to every voter, vote at home, meaning voting in your in your home. Um, what that really offers folks is not only convenience and also security, because I've also been sharing that in a lot of ways we, we mitigate risk by delivering the ballots to everybody in there and where they are and meeting them where they are instead of this model of forcing everyone to go to a location that they're assigned to that could be something could bad could happen at, or there could be a physical threat to, or any of those things. So voting in person has a ton of vulnerabilities that have been present over time. And the pandemic has exposed another significant vulnerability that exists with, with in-person voting. Um, so voting at home is really about convenience. 
It's also about mitigating risk. It's also about improving the election administration process. And, you know, by streamlining some of these things, just like in the business world, if you make things easier for your customer, you're also able to realize efficiencies on the back end from an operational perspective, reducing call volumes into customer service hotlines, all those things when you streamline the customer process. Uh, so it's it's very much about that. And then the the community aspect of it is an interesting one. A lot of people will say, or a lot of folks that maybe don't like vote, at mail, vote by mail or vote at home will say, well, you're taking the community aspect away. Well, I actually think we're increasing that. And the reason why is if you get your ballot at home, number one, you can engage with your friends on Zoom now um, or in other ways and talk about issues. And maybe those friends aren't assigned to the same polling location that you have, um, but they're across the city or they're in different networks, for instance. And we saw that happening actually in Colorado where people would host um, ballot parties and ballot and beer parties and they'd host you know, online chat forums with their friends and talk about issues that their community was was voting on or candidates. And so I think looking at it more in that way is, is a much better um, and a much more productive way to look at it because community can still be there. Family can still be there. Um, I've always enjoyed voting my ballot and having my kids sit next to me and I walk them through, you know, what this means to do. And then if I'm not sure about a judge or I'm not sure about a particular thing, I'll look it up and I show them how to do that research. And I know I'm building lifelong voters by, by approaching it that way. So I think there's so many positive aspects to this on how it can actually build community in a different way than the traditional way of showing up and seeing your neighbors uh, per se. Um, and part of that also is, you know, we have a, a more interconnected community meeting online or on social media channels or any of those things than maybe we used to. And so I think thinking about it in a different way and, and, and looking at the real advantages that come with vote at home systems that can actually create community, especially yeah. in a pandemic or a bad situation. Yeah, as you suggested, it just requires you to think about community in a different way. Yeah, that's right. Um, just like we're all doing right now. That's exactly <laughs> yep. right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly right. So let me get to uh, some of the the challenges around the transition to a, a more robust vote at home system. First of all, uh, for those uh, of us who are sort of election nerds, what are the operational challenges in in transitioning from a let's say a, a, a you know the the, the precinct-based voting to, to vote at home? What, what are the top three or four things there? Sure. So, um, you know, when we shifted uh, from a precinct-based system in Denver, um, and, and we did it over a few years in a lot of ways because we kind of made incremental changes to our vote-by-mail procedures, um, but then we quickly transitioned to an all-vote-by-mail once the legislation passed. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of things to consider First and foremost, I always talk about how it's a comprehensive, you know, system. And so if we need, if we're going to get you a ballot, we need to know where you are. So your voter registration needs to be up to date. Your address needs to be up to date. Uh, and there's mechanisms that we can put in place now that help with that. So for instance, national change of address database through the post office lets people know, uh, and you can, you know, put your address change in there. One thing that we do in Colorado and a lot of Western states do now is they they run their entire voter registration file against that postal uh, database every month to glean address changes off of that and then proactively update address records based on that. 
Um, and the reason that's great is that reduces the voter from having to fill out another piece of paper with the election office, but it also it, it increases our chances of getting the ballot to the right place um, because ballots are not forwardable. Um, so that's kind of an example of where it actually starts at the voter registration process. And then, and then there's other things like equipment needs. So assessing, does a county have an ability to centrally count and tabulate the ballots that come in? Um, are they a large county and do they need additional equipment to receive ballots? So there are devices called ballot sorters, there's extraction envelope equipment. Um, so there's lots of equipment that goes into it as well. Um, and it's different type of equipment than what election officials are used to in precinct-based operations, and it actually requires less of a footprint. So you don't need a big giant warehouse housing a lot of voting machines as maybe you used to because most of your voting and most of your, well, actually all of your ballots will be cast on a piece of paper, um, even those that come in through military voters because there's a paper record established with everything and everything gets centrally counted. Uh, so there's this sort of environment of a central tabulation center where all ballots essentially come into. So I kind of like to say that it's, you know, it's almost like you're, you're boosting up your internal operations because you're sending the ballots out and then they're coming back in uh, to be processed. And that's where most of your election activity will take place. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting in the midst of all this, as we were, um, encouraging people to think about voting at home. I got a call from a guy who used to, who was a retired printer who did a lot of direct mail processing. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I know how to do this. <laughs> he yeah. said, help me just point me to the, your election officials so I can advise them on how to process and sort and open and bundle right. and all that kind of stuff. And that, that struck me, as you said, that's a, that's a kind of competence that we haven't really developed in our, uh, in our, in our voting, uh, our election uh, operations. So, well, it's, it's a competence that's definitely been developed in Western states. So there's, yeah. there's a ton of experts across the spectrum. And what's great about this right now, I think for states that don't have a ton of vote, vote at home uh, provisions is there's actually a lot of experts that have figured we've, we've had to go through the pain of, of implementing this and, we've developed really good procedures. And so there is a way to scale it right now because sure. there are some really great county officials and, and state officials that have implemented this and can share their knowledge and share their best practices. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do at the National Vote at Home Institute is be that conduit and be that advisor to states on how best to do that. Yeah. Um, and we've been collecting the best practices and providing trainings and all of that because there's no need to reinvent the wheel. It's been done well, and it's really about replicating what's been done in a good way in various states. Sure, and that's the advantage of the fact that voting is a state and county and local locally managed business. Let me uh, ask you about the another aspect of the challenges of transition, which is sort of the the, the fears in voters' minds, the perceptual mm -hmm. challenges. You know, when I talk about this to people, sometimes I. I tweeted something about voting at home the other day and guy responded to me, you know, voting by mail is an invitation to wholesale fraud. Mm -hmm. I also hear people say, I'm not sure I trust the post office to, uh, to get my uh, ballot uh, back home. So those are two examples of fears that, that voters have, but how do you respond to those? How do you respond to, to other concerns that you hear coming up? 
Sure. Well, well, those specifically, I think it's, again, it's all about the system. And I always say that it's, it's much more than just mailing a ballot out. And, you know, there's things like ballot tracking tools, which we actually created the first in the country in Denver back in 2009. And that tool allows voters to sign up with an email or a cell phone number, and they get essentially just like a FedEx package, you get tracking info about the status of your mail ballot. So you know when it's at the post office, you know when it's out for delivery to you, and then all the way back again, you get an actual confirmation for when your ballot's been received and then when it goes into the counting room. You get that full transparency of where it is. So that's one of the tools I always suggest as being critical for not only the security, but also the communication aspect and giving voters confidence in, in where their ballot is. Um, the other piece is, you know, we have to empower individuals with options and give them an ability to vote without relying on either structures, entities, or, or third parties. And, you know, one of the examples we saw in North Carolina in 2018 was uh, voters were being taken advantage of by bad actors um, that were offering to collect their ballots and take them in uh, to be to be dropped off. And what's interesting about that is one thing I've suggested is, well, if the county would have offered prepaid postage, voters would not have had to give their ballots to somebody else. They could have just mailed it themselves, right? So it again goes to when you streamline the voting process and you make it better for voters individually and give the individuals the power to decide what works best for them, decide if they want to mail it through the post office or if they want to go drop it off in person, we can eliminate some of those challenges with people being t- taken advantage of. Uh, yeah. The other aspect is penalties in each state's laws about things like intimidation or interfering with a drop box, just like they are a felony for a postal box. They also have to be that same strict uh, felony provisions for anybody that tries to do those things. Most states have provisions against intimidation, but if they don't, they need to have those things in place because it's not even just mail ballots. Those things happen in droves outside of polling places. And we had, when I was running Denver's election, we would get complaints all the time about people being either intimidated outside of a polling place or harassed at their houses or maybe mailers sent to their house that had the wrong information on it. Um, what's interesting is I, I think also a lot of people sort of discount or ignore all of the issues like that in the in-person voting structure. Um, while talking about the new possibility of other options, they kind of ignore a lot of those problems that exist in the in-person voting structure as well. Yeah. Um, the other safeguards that we have in place are things like signature verification, um, and there's really good methods and training and, and standards that have been developed in Western states on that. Um, and you know, while that has to be a fair process so that if a signature doesn't match, there's a way for a voter to cure that. We also want to make sure that there's enough time for voters to cure that. And those provisions are in place in a good way. So those are all the kind of policy related matters that touch on those two issues that you brought up. Um, we have not seen, um, uh, uh, significant increases, for instance, in cases referred to the district attorneys, specifically about vote by mail. We've not seen those things happen in states that have rolled this out broadly, partly because of those provisions I mentioned that are in place that prevent those things from happening. Yeah, that's a great point you make about people sort of blithely ignoring the the challenges of voting in person as they consider vote by, by uh, voting at home. 
you know. Well, and you know, one one example, just real quickly, I always say to people, is and is interfering with the election a five hour line, or is it worse that voters walk away from a five hour like it? Then nothing could be more intimidating to a voter, or frankly, more fraudulent than voters being faced with lines that are so long that they can't, they literally can't physically stay there um, for whatever reason. Uh, we just saw a story out of Florida in their recent primary where a gentleman had to leave the line because he was running out of oxygen. He oh. didn't have enough oxygen to stay in line any longer, right? And we, when we see stories like that, that exposes some of those other issues with in-person voting beyond a pandemic, just simply having to wait that long in line is impossible for many people. Yeah. Well, and uh, we got to, uh, without naming names locally, it feels to me sometimes our uh, local election officials treat long lines or other inadequacies, broken machines or whatever, at the polls is like it's an act of God. It just sort of happened. But it's very predictable and knowable. And and that's something, to my mind, you, you have to manage to. Yes. Uh, I just note that you know, the Committee of 70 was founded in 1904 yeah. uh, to, to combat the in-person uh, intimidation and thuggery that was going on at the polls. So here we are 116 late, years later with a, just a different challenge. Yeah. Uh, so Pennsylvania, as you know, uh, fortuitously expanded uh, vote-at-home privileges last fall in an act yeah. of the legislature. And without any knowledge, of course, that we're going to entering into this public health crisis. And there's sort of a debate right now as to whether we should sort of, as it were, rip the Band-Aid and just say, let's send everybody a ballot or uh, take a more uh, uh, play it as it goes uh, kind of approach and say, well, why don't we just encourage people, but uh, but be uh, take this uh, in a little more uh, cautious, uh, more more measured approach. Do you have an opinion on which one of those makes most sense? Uh, I do. And, you know, we're actually seeing this play out in the state of Wisconsin right now. Um, so they had about 120,000 or so applications uh, about 10 days ago, maybe close to two weeks ago. That's gone up to a million in less than two weeks. And the local election officials are completely overwhelmed with processing all of those applications. And what I've been saying is, look, it's actually less expensive and more efficient for local election officials to mail a ballot automatically because this process of making the local election officials process all these applications and then send the ballot, the transaction, the total cost of that transaction is close to $15 when you sort of add in all the elements of processing the data entry, the then preparing of the ballot, the sending of the ballot, and then processing it on the back end. It's very expensive when it would actually be, you know, more like $2 a, a ballot to mail the ballot automatically. Um, so we're seeing counties spend a ton of money on this right now. Georgia just opted to send applications to every voter. And I, um, you know, I've been saying to some of the officials there, we'll expect the numbers like what you're seeing in Wisconsin where you're going to be completely inundated with a lot of people asking for their ballot that way, then they still have to send the ballot out after they get all that paperwork done. Um, so it's a very inefficient process, actually. And, and given the crunch timeline that we have, I actually believe it is more, more um, feasible 
and it takes less burden, it takes more burden off of the local election officials to do an automatic uh, kind of ballot situation. And that's my advice to Pennsylvania. Um, I think especially given this pandemic, while it's great that Pennsylvania lifted some of the restrictions on vote by mail, uh, they're probably gonna have to jump even further because this pandemic is, is really making it enormously challenging and frankly, um, completely unreasonable to have in-person voting uh, in this environment with stay-at-home orders and shelter-in-place orders and all those sorts of things. You cannot, you know, vote in person. Uh, the other, the final thing I would say on that is the only primaries that have continued without being disrupted are Oregon's is still on, on slate to uh, have their primary as scheduled. Two primaries or three primaries are happening this week. Hawaii, Alaska, and Wyoming, all of which have mailed ballots to every voter. Uh, and those are state-run, uh, state-party-run primaries, and I helped to advise on some of them. Um, but they, you know, they came and asked me last fall, we have to run our primary, the election officials in the state don't run the primary, it's the party, how do we do it? And I said, I would send a ballot to everyone, offer ranked choice voting, because you have a ton of candidates running for president, and have all the ballots come back into a central place with prepaid postage. So they're literally running their elections right now in exactly the way that I would recommend states run it for not only the upcoming primaries, but for the fall. And they've got voters voting. They've got record turnout, even in a pandemic. And the only thing they've had to adjust is they've gotten rid of their in-person voting. Uh, Kansas is doing the same thing come um, May 2nd for their, for their um, party-run primary. Uh, so those are the only elections that haven't been disrupted um, and voters are continuing to vote because they had that option. That's very smart. Uh, talk a little bit about your, I know you just released uh, maybe a week or so ago, your kind of national strategy that embodies a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, sort of advice to states and, and, and take a minute to plug your website as well. Sure. So our website is voteathome.org. Uh, and we did release a plan. We released a strategy plan that not only talks about some of the policies and the considerations that are that are that states are faced with, but also a decision tree. It kind of lays out the three different options that you know states have in front of them, depending on where they are in the spectrum, if you will, of voting at home. And then we outline how to actually do it. So a lot of a lot of groups are putting out policy recommendations right now, but ours is really about policy. And then how do you do it? How do you actually make this work in a realistic way? Um, and and we hope that all the secretaries of state around the country are looking at it. We hope election officials are looking at it um, because it does outline how a lot of these things can be done. And then as a follow to that, we're working with a lot of our key partners on putting out toolkits, putting out checklists, putting out um, different resources like a timeline and suggestions on how state and locals can actually do this. Uh, so a lot of that is going to come in the next week or two um, from various groups that are that have been hard at work on this. Uh, and the final thing I would say about that is, um, uh, again, our website is votehome.org. In addition to the strategy plan, we also have all of our training materials, best practices, uh, research on this topic in a reference library that's on our website uh, that's really accessible and it's a great tool for for folks to use. That's great. Um, we used to have a uh, tourism slogan in Pennsylvania that you've got a friend in Pennsylvania. Oh. Uh, 
you moved on to other slogans. I always thought that was a pretty good one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, in the committee of 70, uh, know that you've got a friend in Pennsylvania. So yeah, well, I appreciate that. You guys have been a great partner. We really appreciate it. You were doing great work. I wanted you just to give you a quick moment to talk about your fairly new book. Uh, sure. That's out uh, called When Women Vote. Yep. That's right. Uh, when Women Vote uh, is a book that I wrote with one of my best friends. Um, and what we did is we interviewed women around the country about their voting experience in 2018. And one of the things that we actually call for in the book is expanded vote at home options. Uh, we published it, we, we put it out in January before all of this started. Obviously, we wrote it over the course of 2019. Um, but what's interesting is when we interviewed those various women, all had very different experiences, but all had, except for one, had challenges with the experience that was in front of them. And so in our book, we advocate for expanding vote at home options. We also talk about the need to modernize voter registration processes, along with automating the voter registration process. We also talk about the need for redistricting reform and, and, and fair processes and procedures around that. Um, and then we highlight the need for ranked choice voting in primary elections and other elections as a, as a tool to, to improve the voting process overall. Um, but we highlight a lot of these things in our book. Uh, it's a short read. It's available on Amazon. It's also on Kindle now. Um, WhenWomenVote.org is the landing page for our website. Um, and it was uh, really fun to highlight. Um, and, and part of the reason we call it When Women Vote, it applies to everyone. But given that, that we're in the centennial of women's suffrage, we, we wanted to tell the story of the need for this through the eyes of various women voters around the country. Uh, and we also interviewed two amazing women secretaries of state, both Jocelyn Benson in Michigan and then, and then Kim Wyman in Washington, who both articulate the need for nonpartisan um, voting reform that makes the process easier for all voters, uh, regardless of your partisan stripes. We just want to improve the process for everyone. Um, and they articulate that really well in the book as well. That's great. I am uh, just in the midst of a book uh, called The Woman's Hour that maybe you might have read about the, the yeah. The political fight to secure the 36th state to ratify the uh, uh, 19th right. Amendment in 1920. So it sounds like this would be a good um, companion to that. Yes, it would. And it's a quick read. We didn't want to make it a huge academic book that nobody would, you know, want to <laughs> want to read. But it's it's very consumable. It's um, we've had a lot of great feedback, a lot of great support on it. Uh, so I would encourage you to read it. That was Amber McReynolds, CEO of the National Vote at Home Institute. A quick thanks to Joel Patterson for editing this episode and to all the folks at the Committee of 70 who make the work we do possible. Visit our website at 70theword70.org to learn about the nonpartisan voter information we can put in your hands before the June 2nd primary. I'm David Thornburg, and until next time, stay safe, stay well, and expect more Philadelphia.